0: We're preaching today, uh, obviously c- continuing on in Revelation, and we have a fairly difficult text today that is highly debated. Maybe one of the most debated texts in the Scriptures. Um, but before I even start in this uh, debatable text, because I'll go ahead and tell you, I'm not—I don't hold the position that my understanding is the understanding, and you better agree with me or you're wrong. Um, there, there is other people who believe differently about the, uh, the, the details of this text. And I say to that, you know, amen, let every man be convinced in his own mind um, of the nature of that passage. That is not to say that I don't take serious the the meaning of the text or that I think it's unimportant. It's it's only to say that it can be understood and interpreted in different ways, depending on how you understand the scriptures, depending really on how you understand a lot of other scriptures in the New Testament and the Old Testament, depending on how you understand Old Testament Israel and what the implications are for them leading into today, you know what the significance of of modern day Israel is, all of these questions come into play. I, I don't. I wish I had time to show you all the views and all the interpretations of this text. I just, I simply don't have time for that. But what I will do is I'll show you my understanding of the text, and it will be consistent with uh, the rest of Revelation that I've interpreted for you and 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 exegeted for you, or went through verse by verse. Is what that means. But. Um what, what I will show you today is my understanding of that, and I'll give you reasons why I believe what I believe, but I will say if you want to know more about this text and you want to see other views and there are good, good commentary, there's lots of people who would see the text as I see it. There's lots of people who see the text differently than I see it. And the reason I say all of that is this, is that lots of places in the scripture we call didactic text or we call close-handed or you know, I'll die on that hill kind of text. Does that make sense? This is not one of those. We we have room to discuss this and debate this. The significance of how you understand this isn't going to be a foundational doctrine of the Christian faith. It'll 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 it'll, it'll um It'll change your eschatology a little bit. It'll change how you view the end times a little bit. It'll change some of your soteriology or who is saved or who is the people of God. But it's not closed-handed issues. So what I'm saying is is that for some reason, a lot of people really fight over eschatology and the end times and the 144,000. We're in chapter 7 today, by the way, if I hadn't already said that. But the 144,000, who they are, who Israel is, a lot of people fight about that. Well, here in this church, we're not going to fight about that. We can discuss it, and we can differ on it, we can disagree on it, but I just don't think it's one of those things that we can fight on. As a matter of fact, I almost guarantee you, when we stand before the king, and we stand before the Lord, he's going to say, well, you had that part right, and you were wrong on this, 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 and this, and he will tell the other guy the exact same thing. Well, you had that right, but this, 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 this is all jacked up. So the best that we can do is go to the text, And we can try our best to find a consistent contextual meaning, meaning that we want to know what was John trying what meaning was John trying to convey to his audience. Now, I know that might sound academic and I will go ahead and tell you on the front end that the first part of this sermon is going to be somewhat academic. I've got to show you contextually why I believe the text says what the text says. But then comes the application and the and the focus on Christ that shows you whether or not you believe it's Israel or whether or not you believe it's the church or some mysterious remnant whether or not you believe either one of those it still has applications for us either way okay and so that'll be the broader understanding and the general application of the text now i wanted that's it really introductory there because i want to set up for you just exactly what we're looking at now what i want to do is get into the text and i want to show you what i believe that john is preaching or teaching here when he speaks of his vision of the 144,000 and how I believe that that is consistent with everything that he's been saying so far. And let me just do a quick reminder of what I think he's been saying so far, and it's this. In every letter, in every chapter so far, this has been the primary thrust of the argument and the Um, The idea or the principles that he's been putting forward is that there's going to be suffering, but Jesus Christ, the suffering servant who is the faithful and true one, is going to sustain you through that suffering and in the end will provide ultimate vindication for the true sons and daughters of God. Okay? Okay? That's been the main argument throughout. So you're not suffering in vain. You will not be turned over to this suffering. You will not be lost to this suffering, but you will be maintained and carried through the suffering and that it will have purpose and it will have meaning. And in the end, you will be vindicated by the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, okay? Now, that is the thrust of the book so far. I think we can all agree with that. With chapter 1, chapter 2, the letters, chapter 4 in the throne room, that the saints will be uh, vindicated, that the saints will be, um, uh, uh, will be uh, carried through by the glory that's emanating from the throne, that they're being empowered, and so on and so forth. And then we get to chapter uh, 6, and we start to see the tribulations start to be uh, described in the first four seals and then you have the fifth seal the sixth seal uh and then now we're getting into chapter seven and then the seventh seal won't come until chapter eight okay so let's let's read chapter seven and then we'll do uh we'll do some work in unpacking the verses. everybody stand to your feet while we read the word of god Very difficult text, but a very fun text, I must say. And when I understood what I believe John is teaching here, I believe you'll be, I think, you'll be like, oh, man, that makes sense. Okay, so let's read uh, the Word of God. Earth and Sea saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. and I heard the number of the sealed one hundred and forty four thousand sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel, twelve thousand from the tribe of Judah were sealed, twelve thousand from the tribe of Reuben, twelve thousand from the tribe of Gad, twelve thousand from the tribe of Asher, twelve thousand from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. And that's as far as we're going to go today. You may be seated. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Now, we may get in a little bit to verses 9 through 17 but that's going to be a little, bit, uh, a little bit later on, and we may just save that for next week because it's pretty significant, these two groups. Let me say this before we get started, is that I hope you've been following along, and, and I know there's newcomers here that's been here for a week or two, or maybe today's your first day. Um, I think that this sermon will be perfectly applicable to you, and you can <clears throat> apply it to your life and allow God to change and move you through it. But I would also recommend if you could in your, in your spare time, that way anybody has spare time, but it may be driving time or grass cutting time or something like that, if you'll tap on to the well. Uh, website it's www.thewell-landrum.com and find the little menu bar there you can click on sermons and all of the sermons on revelation up to d- up to this day are on there and you can listen to the audio on those because what i'm saying what i'm going to say today it really draws a lot from the first six chapters of the book so let's start to unpack chapter seven and let's look and see what john might be teaching us as he's seeing this vision okay So he says in chapter seven, verse one. He says, "After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth, or sea, or against any tree." So in this uh, in this first verse of chapter seven, we have the first two words, and we really need to stop there for just a second. He says, "After this, now." We need to understand what after this might mean because it, it we need, to, I mean, that will tell us is this a chronological after this? Is this like, is this, is chapter seven happening after chapter six happens? Or is there something else going on here? And that, that really kind of makes a difference, right? The chronological order here kind of makes a difference. Well, this might throw us off at first. And, and as I was talking to some of, uh, my brothers yesterday and just kind of bouncing some of these things off of them and trying to push them into text a little bit and really gaining some insight for myself too. I asked them a couple of questions and, and this is very, very, very common for me and for everybody else reading the Bible in any place. We just did the class on Um, biblical overview, and we learned a little bit about hermeneutics and that type of thing, but here's where I'll caution you as I caution myself. You have to slow down a little bit when you're reading the text, okay? You have to slow down, and you have to ask questions of the text because we could just automatically assume that the after this is showing uh, an event now that is coming after the event that took place before in chronological order, but if we read, I think that we'll find out in the text, the scripture itself will show us that it can't be, after in chronological order it's just a sequence of visions so he saw the vision after the other vision but it was not in chronological order why does that make a difference you say well it's this this reason it's my understanding and i'll show you why is that chapter seven is is kind of like a prequel you ever seen a prequel a movie i think they did star wars like that didn't they Some of the Star Wars movies came out back in the day, and then they came out with prequels later on that was actually a story, but it was before the old ones, right? A sequel is after, and a prequel is before. So this is a kind of prequel. It says, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. Well, I think what John is saying when he says, after this, see, John is seeing a sequence of visions, okay? He sees uh, the first seal open. He sees the second seal. He sees the third seal. He sees the fourth seal. He sees the fifth seal. He sees the sixth seal. And now he's seeing this. But it doesn't, now the seals seem to go in order, okay? We see that from the text. But when it says, after this, I saw it, seems like he is seeing another another vision after this vision. But when we read, it's going to see that this vision that he's reading in chapter 7 is actually going to be in chronological order before the first seal was even opened. That matters too. Watch this. He says, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. That's going to be significant because in, in Zechariah, and I can't, I don't have time to go back to all the verses. Write them down. You can go back and check behind me. In Zechariah chapter six, verses one through eight, the four horses of the apocalypse are identified as and equated with the four winds, So we're going to see here that he's going to say the four angels standing at the four corners. And we understand the four angels as those who have power. And they're standing at the four corners. Remember the the horns on the altar? How many horns were there? Four. On, On what? The corners of the altar. And the horn represents what? power. So this is a demonstration of God's power at every corner of the earth. So it's total encompassing power that has the power to hold back the four winds, which represent what? The four horsemen. Okay, so we're, we're already starting to see that now we, don't, we haven't established that it's before in sequence, time sequence yet. We've just established that this angel, this vision that he's seeing is four angels representing power at the four corners of the earth. So he's over the whole earth and he's holding back the four winds from damaging anything on the earth, Okay. Now, it says that holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree, then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called out with a loud voice. We'll talk about this angel later, but listen to what he says. The seal of the living God, and he called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now, if this was after in a chronological sequence or a time sequence, if this was after chapter 6, then the, then the text is really contradictory or the, they didn't do what the angels said, right? Because in chapter 6, all of that's happened. So this, this must be a prequel to, it must be a vision that shows something that happened before the tribulation shown in chapter 6. So he is telling this angel, these angels, the, the supreme angel, we'll get to in a second, are telling the other four angels that's been permitted to harm. He's saying, Don't harm yet. Something's got to happen before you start harming. So basically, we see this. It's kind of a vision, an interlude to what happened before the tribulation, and I'll tell you why I think he does it like that. Check out chapter six. Listen, we've got context, context, context is king to us understanding what he's actually trying to say. We'll look at chapter six. Right at the end of the chapter. It says, now this is this, this tribulation is unfolding in chapters 9 through 11. we We've already seen the saints who are hidden on the altar say, who, who, you know, when will you vindicate us, Lord? When will this stop? When are you going to, when are you going to judge? Basically, is what, he, what he's asking. Well, when he says that, listen to what he says. When he opened the sixth, oh, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 10. Ah, chapter 6, verse 10. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord. Now these are the saints that have died beforehand in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, covered by the blood, covered by the altar. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves themselves had been so he said hold on a little while something has to happen before we can pour out judgment there has to be others fellow servants that come into this fold just like you did listen to what he says when he opened the sixth seal now this is just getting context here and you should be learning how to read the scriptures too as we do this okay when he opened the sixth hill, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell onto the earth uh, as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll and is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us. From the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? So this tribulation has started, and, and these events have begun to, to rain down fire, to, to judge already, and, and, the, and the question comes at the end, who can stand? Who can stand these things? Who can endure? Who is going to make it through? Who is going to persevere? Who will be the ones that, is going to sur- that are going to survive this great tribulation that is going to destroy so much of the earth? Who can survive? You see? So then he goes back. Now he says after this, but after this he saw the vision that explains who is going to make it through it. He is answering the question asked at the end of chapter 6. He says, who can stand? And basically he's saying, then God showed me who's going to be able to stand and how they're going to be able to stand through what he just told me is going to happen. Does that make sense? Everybody following so far? Good, good. Now, let's kind of do a little bit more work here. He says, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sear against any tree. Then I saw another angel. So, okay. So he says, he says, you want to know who can stand? You want to know who can stand? Well, let's go back, and I'll show you what's going to happen and who's going to stand through these storms and through these plagues and through these famines. I'll show you who's going to stand, and I'll show you how they're going to stand. One, he says, I'm going to hold it all back until I've done something he said i'm going to hold it all back so i'm going to i'm going to hold this back i'm going to sustain for a little while until something happens and then it's going to all turn loose and war and famine and plague is going to hit the earth but the ones who have Uh, been found in me and sealed we'll go on to see that they're going to be sealed they will experience much of this tribulation John said that he is a partner and a partaker of the tribulation and the kingdom right he said they will endure much of this but in the end when everyone else is waste dust and nothing else and they are they are a heap of ash laying on the ground I will have some who will be standing I will have some who will be standing he says, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against my tree, against any tree. Then I saw another angel descending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the sea. I want to show you right here right quick. I won't spend a ton of time. This is debated whether, who this angel is. Who is this other angel? Now, we know that that it seemingly is a good angel, okay? Because he has the seal of the living God, and he is providing protection for the people of God. So, seemingly, it is a good angel. I think it's very interesting. Now, just a little bit of conjecture from me, a little bit of, you know opinion here, let me let me say it that way, is that I really believe that this angel seems very, very similar to Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ is the one seen, seen descending and ascending. Jesus Christ is the one who seals the people of God. Jesus Christ is the one who protects the people of God. And if you think it's too far-fetched that Jesus Christ will be called an angel, we see that again, I think, in chapter 10, where we really believe that that's Jesus as an angel. And all throughout the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, that's a Christophany, and we do believe that that is Jesus Christ making himself manifest in the Old Testament. You can go and check those out yourself. That's a, a view held by uh, Augustine and several other theologians that Jesus Christ is the angel of the Lord. So it's not too far-fetched here to think that this is Jesus Christ commanding those angels who have been given authority to harm the earth, you know, telling them, whoa, stop. I've got something that I need to do, and then you'll be able to go. But even if it's not, this is a powerful angel that commands and has authority over those angels that have been granted authority to harm the earth. And he tells them, wait, stop. Here, let me make a point right here. Nothing can come against you lest it goes through the hand of God. And, if it go- and speaking to the children of God... Anything that comes against you, children of God, has to be allowed by God. And we know that God works all things together for the greater good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose that they might be conformed to the image of the Son. So here is where that same contextual, same consistent meaning comes out that if you are suffering, then not only was was it not an accident, but it was probably more than likely, almost inevitably designed just for you to do in you something that you would not do in yourself. God has designed purpose in the pain that you feel that would bring glory to God. And in the end, it would benefit you and glorify your Father in heaven. Amen? He has authority to stop it And to allow it to start. And you say, well, that seems kind of mean. (laughs) Well, have you ever ever allowed your son to do something that you knew wasn't a very good idea? And it wasn't going to kill him, but it sure would teach him a lesson. Right? Because you know what's good for him. You've told him ten times not to touch that thing because it's hot. Well, it wasn't hot enough to really burn him, so you said, touch it. Touch it. You don't believe me? Touch it. Oh, I told you. You think he's going to touch it again? If he's stupid, he may. But hopefully not. He's learned a lesson. Let me show you. Not only does, do we know that he has power to stop them, but there's another thing in the text right here that's very revealing to us too, and he might just read right by it if you, didn't, if you didn't slow down and catch it. Somebody showed it to me. Listen. It says here, it says, not only did he say to them, stop, but he said, then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels. Check this verbiage out right here. This is called a passive tense verb. Watch what he says? Who had been given power to harm the earth and sea. Did you catch that? Did you catch that? That means just like Satan and Job, when, when Satan came over, he's like, Job's going Job's gonna to run away. Job's going to run away. And God's like, no, he's not. And Job's like, yeah, well, the only reason he does this is this, 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 and this. And God's like, well, okay, then go ahead and test him. Satan could not do one single thing until God said, "All right, I guess, go ahead. I'll let you do it this time, just to show you how faithful my servant is. Now, some people might look at that again and say, that's just not right. But what if you really looked at it from another angle? What if you looked at it from the angle of God had so much faith in Job that he allowed Satan to hit him with everything that he had? So that Job would shine like a diamond at the end of it all. And in order to be vindicated and receive back a hundredfold. And all of that glory, Job was glorified through this. He was shown to be an awesome man of God. But you know what all of that glory pointed, all of that, all of that glory that he received, you know what happened to it? It all got reflected back to God. It all got reflected back to God because God was the one that held him through it, which is perfectly in line with what we're saying. We're saying that God is going to unleash on the earth all of these tribulations and judgments that will be intended to judge the unrighteous and to kill the unrighteous and to pour out wrath on the unrighteous and simultaneously, simultaneously, Test the righteous. So when, every, when everything is done and everything is said and the dust settles and the hush falls over, and you'll see the hush fall over everything, as in my imagination, as the Lord Jesus, as the text says, has one foot on the sea and one foot on the land like this in judgment, and he's wiped it all out, he's looking over, and all he can see are the righteous. Righteous. That's all he can see. Because they've made it through the fire. They've made it through the fire. Now, how did they make it through the fire? He's bringing the fire. How did they make it through the fire? Well, how did Job make it through the fire? How does anybody make it through the fire? How do we... Well, let's read on. Let's let the text tell us. We, we, give, we get an idea even right here in this angel. Uh, in verse 2, it says, Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun now where does the sun rise in the east where is the door on the tabernacle east okay we see that the salvation is coming from the east and we see that this angel is 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 ascending coming up from the east And we see it says, uh, from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. Now, the seal is going to be very important. And and I don't have time to take you to all the scriptures. But the seal in the scriptures indicated that you were owned by an individual. A seal was used in slavery. A seal was used in um, livestock. A seal was used in uh, the tabernacle system and the temple system. A seal was given in order to demonstrate ownership of... Of that thing and the right to reclaim it or to use it however the owner saw fit. Okay? So this seal is demonstrated in the scriptures to be that which is placed on, when we're talking about individuals, that is that which is to be placed on an individual to mark him out or set him to the side in order to consecrate him for a single purpose or for a single master or for a single intent. Okay? Now, this seal is coming through the hand of this angel. The seal is coming through the hand of this angel and will be placed on the forehead. Now, interestingly enough, in later Judaism, in later um, uh, cultural Judaism, that they would use these texts here, and they would actually mark on the foreheads their slaves. And you know what the mark they started to use looked like? A cross. Now, that's that's really kind of reading you know, culture back into the Bible, so we don't want to do that. I just think it's very interesting how even the Jews and Judaizers of that time, when they were using these texts and importing these texts, they would mark their foreheads with a cross to signify that this was my servant and he didn't belong to anybody else. You see here, we even see the angel as he comes to hold back the four corners of the earth, to hold back uh, the The four winds that would destroy the earth he does so with the with power so that he can do something else so that he can seal all the ones that have been given to him and been faithful to him. It says uh, the seal of the living God he added, he had the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice of the four angels who had been given power to harm the sea, harm the earth and the sea saying. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. That's going to be really crucial right there. Let me, let me skip over. I want to show you an old text. Because what I'm going to say is, I'm going to go ahead and put this out there to you so you can understand where I'm going. I am going to hold the position that the 144,000 and the multitude in chapter 7 verses 9 through 17 are the same group of people from different perspectives. I'm going to hold that the 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel, 12,000 from each tribe. Now, this list is different from any other Old Testament list that we can find. It's absolutely unique. I'm going to hold that the 12... Uh, the. The one hundred forty-four thousand from twelve tribes, twelve from each, twelve thousand from each tribe. I am going to hold that that is a symbolic number from a symbolic people, and it's meant to be understood as all those who have been found in Jesus Christ. These are Christians that are that are numbered. He knows every single one of them. From day one, I'll show you exactly why I believe that. But that's where I'm going. I wanted to go ahead and tell you that because what I'm going to say now is going to start to show you why I believe that that is the best understanding in the context. Now, going back to this reading of the text and this, uh, this, this, because most people would say, and a lot of the times I agree, that they say the plain, simple reading of the text should be the understood meaning of the text. And I say, well, Amen, Amen. I think when we start to spiritualize and we start to put our own meanings and we start to do this, I think you get in big trouble because we can make the Bible say what we think it should say and we don't get the original meaning of the text, okay? I agree with that. But the problem here is, is that we don't need to say you need to read it with your plain understanding of the text and have your plain understanding pushed onto the text. What we need to find is what would the author have meant to convey, what would the plain meaning have been to the original audience that would have been reading it in their time? Does that make sense? Does that make sense? So if what would have been the plain reading that they would have read? Now, I think that I can show you through uh, context and through the Scriptures that I do not believe that John's audience would have understood this to mean a, and I'll tell you a couple of the different views. Some people believe that this is um, a specific number of, of ethnic Jews that would be saved at some point in time. Some people believe that this is, uh, equivalent to Romans chapter 11, verses 24 through 26, where they say, where Paul says, All Israel will be saved. Some people think that this is the All Israel and the, the number is symbolic and meaning All Israel. Maybe this is the time when that is fulfilled. Uh, others believe that this is a special group of martyrs that happens to die in the name of Christ and they come to Christ after the tribulation starts. Now, you see why I have to reject all of those because of my understanding of what the book has already been teaching. I don't believe that uh, Israel and the church are two distinct groups of people and need to be seen as groups. When, I, when Paul says there is neither Jew nor Greek, I have to just say, okay, he's destroyed the distinction, and racism is no more in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there only exists now one nation, one kingdom from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And so I must say, well, what does this mean? Is an end. And let me say this, and I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but have we not seen in the whole book of Revelation several, several times where, and I want you to listen to me with an open mind and let the text define what the text means. Has the scripture over and over and over again used the exact same terms that were prophesied about ethnic Israel to describe the church of Jesus Christ? Disc- and when I say church, I don't mean Gentiles with the exclusion of Jews. I'm not a replacement theologian. I do not believe that. But I believe that the Jews and Israel was all a foreshadowing of, number one, Jesus Christ, who is the only true Israelite, who is the only one that has kept the covenant. And through Christ, we see true Jews and true Israel emerge and take place and, and, and really take hold of and, and, and find the fulfillment of all the promises of God in Jesus Christ. Now, through Jesus Christ, when we come into that family, we're born into the family of God, and we become Abraham's seed. That's explicit in Galatians chapter 3. We know that, okay? We know that. Now, with this particular understanding of what Paul does with Jews, what uh, 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 Peter does with Jews, what John does in the book, did we not see that it was promised to Israel, ethnic Israel, that they would be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests? Right, Revelation chapter one, uh, verse verses uh, nine through ten, verse six. We see that the fulfillment of Exodus nineteen six is found in the church, and that includes Jews and Gentiles. It is all of those who have been found under the blood of Christ, who have been sealed. Again, in uh, Revelation chapter 3, we see that the irony in the fulfilling of the Jew, uh, of the book of Isaiah, when the Jews would be uh, found out to be the people of God and there would be an influx of Gentiles. We see that ironically fulfilled in reverse order, where the Gentiles would actually be found to be the people of God, and through the Gentiles, and Paul marks it out in Romans, through the inclusion of the Gentiles, many Jews would now be saved. We see God working this magnificent trend all the way through the scriptures. And John has explicitly stated in the book itself that it is those who are in Christ that are true Israel. Now, I want you to watch this and watch the seal of God. Okay? I want you to watch this. Now remember that the seal of God went hand in hand with the name of that individual, the name of God being put on the individual in order to mark him out for ownership, that God owned that individual, that they were truly the Lord Jesus Christ and that that he owned them. Let's look at Ezekiel just to set a little bit of context. Ezekiel chapter 9, if you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, you can just listen. Ezekiel chapter 9 says this. Starting in verse three. Now the glory of God of Israel, now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of, of the house, And he called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, "Pass through the city through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others, he said in my hearing, Pass to the city after him and strike. Your eye shall not spare and you shall, sh- uh, you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark. What was the mark to signify? It was to signify those who were true, those who had not uh, uh, compromised their faith. What have we seen throughout the whole book of John? What did he warn every single church? What was the warning to every church that he wrote to in chapters 2 and 3? What was the warning? Don't compromise, don't compromise, don't compromise. He who is faithful to the end will receive the crown. Don't compromise. The seal of God is the mark of Jesus Christ that would show that they are faithful and that they are born again and that they are true in their faith and in their uh, new birth and in their salvation. But now we still got to deal with the text that says, it says, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. They say, well, there it is. You just want it to say something else. And so you, 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 you twist it and you turn it and you move it and you, am I? Am I? I tried to see it the other way. I tried to take a plain, modern-day understanding and and read that and say, well, there it is. It's the sons of Israel, 12,000 from this tribe and 12,000 from that tribe. But the Lord wouldn't let me rest. You say, why, Brandon? The Lord wouldn't let me rest. Why, Brandon? Because I cannot find a place in the Scriptures where God outright intentionally divides His people. I can't find a place. I can't find a place where it's seemingly that he is going to seal one group of people and not seal another group of people. I can't find a place. All I can seem to find is the, the, the Gentiles being grafted into the family. The two shall become one. I can only find text where it says there is now no longer Jew or Greek, but we are all one. One. I can't find the text. And then I start asking questions. Okay, well, it seems like it can't mean that. Why would you write it like this? And he is saying to me, the whole book has shown how the whole Old Testament is showing you what God is doing. And true Israel is a picture, is a reality that was pictured in the Old Testament. And I'm showing you right now something greater. I said, okay, God. Okay, God, what is that? Well, as I read, and as I studied, and as I looked, and as I moved, and I was like, what is going on here? Check this out. He actually talks about the 144,000 in another place. Look at um, Revelation chapter 14. Now, this is going to be really cool. And I don't have a ton of time, so I can't get too technical, but I want to show you a few things of why this, I don't believe this can be just one group, ethnic group, but it has to be a symbolic. One is one thing I want to show you is, and i, I kind of assume, and, and you know what they say about assuming, I, I kind of assume that this is granted, is that what has revelation been up to this point? Has it been figurative or literal? All the way through, almost everything that we read is what? Figurative. John tells us at the very beginning of the book that this is a symbol, this is a book of symbols that is meaning, that is, that is trying to uh, reveal to you greater truths, Right? So one thing is consistency would seem to demand that this is figurative. Now, to to, you know, to grant some credit, and to give credit where credit is due, even my dispensational friends, uh, my, my uh, friends that separate Israel and the church, they have to find a way to make this figurative too in, in, in a lot of ways because it's just it's figurative language. I mean, we, we really, I don't know too many people believe that there's just there 's only going to be one hundred and forty four thousand sealed like not many people hold that some some do, but uh, they have to do figurative, but it 's a different type of figurative well let 's look and see does John help us to understand what this figurative language is pointing to so we need to let him do his own. Uh, interpreting. Okay, let's turn over to Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with Him 144,000 who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. Okay, And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the Throne And before the four living creatures and before the elders, no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. So the 144,000 have Jesus' name written on them, and they are the redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. So these are male virgins, which, again, is symbolic. It doesn't really mean that they're virgins, but what it means is they're pure these are, these are those who are specifically been marked out and they've been purified. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Who are the 144,000? The ones who have Jesus' name written on them, who have been redeemed from the earth, and who follow Jesus everywhere He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. I really have to decide where I want to go from here. One thing I want to show you is that the number 144,000 is absolutely significant. If you remember, does anybody remember the throne room and how many elders there were around the throne? Somebody tell me. Huh? 24 elders. Now, what did we say that that was a symbolic number of? And we use Revelation 21 to help us show that. What was the 24 made up of? Yes, 12 apostles and 12 tribes. Good job. So the 24 is a combination of Old Testament saints and New Testament saints coming together to make one group of solid believers who are ambassadors for God, the redeemed from the earth. Amen. Now, I want you to watch this, how, how significant is 144,000? And do we have room to rightly understand the 144,000 to be a symbolic number that is meaning to, uh, uh, to reveal to us or to show us The whole number of all of the elect. Now, I know that some of you don't like the word predestination and election and all this kind of stuff. My wife don't like that word. I know it's a tough word, but I want to show you. I want to take a little bit. I've got to use that word today. I'm sorry, babe. I do. It's because I believe what's going on here. When he says 144,000, that's an exact number, right? When he says 144,000, and he also says that there's 12,000 from this tribe, 12 from this tribe. What he's saying is, is that there is an exact number and they are handpicked out from the different uh, tribes. They are handpicked. Only a few is saying that there is an elect predestined remnant that God knows exactly who are his. Now, some will say, I just don't like that. Well, it's, it's there. I don't really know what to say about that. I do believe it's a blessed, blessed truth. I'll show you how. But let's look real quick. I want to establish for you. Now I don't. There's t- so much, so much information. But I think that I want to show you two more things of why I believe the 144,000 is to be seen as all believers, all Christians that have been redeemed. Now you say, okay, well that just seems a little far-fetched because it says Israel. Well, let's look at the 144 and see if we can establish John's own meaning of the 144. Turn to uh, um, Revelation chapter 21. There's so much. Chapter 21, verse 9. He says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. These are the people of God, the marked out, the sealed. These are the people of God. Listen to what he says. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates. And at the 12 gates, 12 angels and on... The twelve gates, the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel, there's our word, were, ins- were inscribed on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Now, what's twelve times twelve? 144. Let's continue reading. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits, by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. When the, when the angel measures and he finds 144, the 144 is made up of the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes. Now, I want you to see something here. He equates the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes joined together as 144 with the name of the city of God. They are the new Jerusalem. Does everybody understand that part from Revelation 21? Okay. Okay. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 3. I want you to watch this now. Remember that the seal are on the 144,000. It's a new name. And we are trying to establish that those with the seal are the new Jerusalem. And this is meant to establish not ethnic Israel, but true Israel and the new Jerusalem, which John has spoken of throughout the whole book. Watch this. This is spoken to a Gentile church. He says in Revelation chapter 3, let's start in verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. That one, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and, uh, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. Which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. You see it? You see, it's the believer that has promised the seal. It is the believer that has promised the endurance. It is the believer that has promised that he will receive the seal of God, the name of God. It is the believer, the one who is found in Jesus Christ, that is said to be New Jerusalem. And New Jerusalem is made up of all people, of all tongues, of all nations, all who bow the knee to Jesus Christ. And the last point I want to make from this, and I think, to me, this was just the nail in the coffin. I don't understand how I could ever unsee it. In Revelation, now, if I had more time, I could show you that, Revelation chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 5 really mirror one another. They're parallels. They're, they're the same thing spoken in two different ways. And in Revelation chapter 5, we see the one, you remember that chapter where the, where the scroll was there. And they said, who will open the scroll? And behold, he says, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open up the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. He goes on in that same place and he says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, every language, and every people and every nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Well, listen explicitly about the 144,000 in Revelation chapter 14 again. He says they were singing a new this is the 144,000. They were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you have ransomed people for God. From every tribe and uh, language and people and nation, you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on earth. The language is so identical that I don't know how you could see them as any other people. That this 144,000 are all of those who have been uh, born again by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ and received the seal. One other thing that we see in this text is that Judah is the first in the list, and Judah's never the first in the list. The only place that Judah is even mentioned first is the prophetic utterance given by the Old Testament saints that says that Judah will be the tribe from which the messianic king springs, and he will be the one that will bless the nations. All of this is showing us that the whole intent of Israel, the whole intent of the coming Messiah, the whole intent on on God's sealing and God's redemption was to find and mark out for himself a particular people throughout history that he will not lose. Amen? And that God will come and he will find you and he will get you and he will sustain you. Let's all stand to our feet. I want to close out. In this way. Next week we'll look at the great multitude, and we'll kind of continue a little bit in this in this vein because what I have attempted to establish today with with text, and there's so much more. I wish I could go on. What I've attempted to establish today is that the 144,000 are a symbolic number of the complete number of the people of god from all times and all places that are marked out before the foundations of the world ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 says that in love he predestined us before the foundations of the world that we might be found in him blameless now i know that the son that says well that means that he didn't predestine some that's a different conversation for a different day let's just focus on the positive of that We'll talk about the other aspect of that next week in The Great Multitude because I think that's the same people, just from a different perspective. And this whole predestination thing, it just depends on which perspective you're talking about. But today, I want to highlight it, and I'll tell you why. The text is very clear. Trials are coming. The text is very clear. Destruction is coming, and you've already seen it. We understand here in this church that that the tribulation has already begun. That's my understanding of it. And that we see that these, that these markers of destruction and poverty have already begun. And many people have already lost their life because of the plea in the gospel tribulation is going to come, trial is going to come. But let me tell you this, for all of you who would choose Christ, all of you who would see him for who he is and call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And let me say this, friends, for those of you who have been saved, you you have received the seal of God. And a seal cannot be broken, not a seal by the Holy Spirit. See, I know that you're going through trials. I know that you're going through struggle. I know because the text tells me that you're going to, and I believe every word in it. You see, I go through them, you go through them, and and, and people cast aside the the doctrine of predestination, but it's all in the scriptures. But you know what? I don't cast it aside because it's unloving. I embrace it because it's very loving. Because what God said is, is that I've known you before you were even born, and I was going to come get you, and I will not fail you. I will not fail you. I had always planned to come get you. And I'm going to come get you. And I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. I cannot. I cannot be mistaken. Now listen, friends. If you're worried about that, who, who, who that might neglect or who that might leave out, there has never been anyone left out that didn't want to be left out. I say with a very clear and bold voice. That just because God knows exactly who is his doesn't mean that people who want to come can't. That's silly. Whosoever will come is the cry of John in Revelation. Whosoever will come. I say to you that we know who are the predestined. We know who are the elect. We know who are marked out with a particular number. All the way back through the beginning of time, we know who they are because they do come. If God is calling to you today, if you feel God drawing at you, if you feel God tugging at you and and, and pulling you in, then you, friend, have heard the voice of God. And if you would only respond right now, He would transform you in the twinkling of an eye, and He would place His seal on you, and nothing could ever turn that back. Nothing could ever snatch you out of His hand. That's what Jesus says. He says, I have come that they might be saved. Who's going to take them out of my hand? Ain't nobody going to take what? I protect my children. And I'm I'm but a man. I'm flesh and bone. You stab me, I bleed. You punch me, I bleed. Jesus Christ is not not to be dabbled with or toyed with. He's the king of the earth. He's He's the king. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he's coming to get his. Listen, friends, hold on. Hold on, because he will never let go. He can't be defeated. He can't be thwarted. He can't be denied, and he can't... You can't even take yourself out of his hand. You see, that's the beauty of this whole doctrine. It's not unloving, not unloving at all. But what it is, is it says... I cannot fail. I cannot fail. I'm coming for you. And another thing too is, and we might close it out on this, is that some of you in here, you got hard hearts right now. And though the Lord is is tugging at you, though he's tugging, you keep moving away, and you keep moving away. And every time you step away, he steps right closer. And every time you pull, he pulls a little closer. He's holding back the four angels and the four winds so that you would know Him before it's too late. You think you can get away? Surrender, friend. You've been marked out from day one. Surrender, friend. You're only only putting off the inevitable. Surrender, friend. You can't beat Him. You can't outrun Him. You can't outsmart Him. And you can't hide from Him. Surrender, friend. He knows exactly who he is. His. Surrender, friend. He knows exactly who he's coming for. Surrender, friend. You can't outrun him. Surrender, friend. There is no greater place to be than under the blood of the Lamb. You see, in the Old Testament, when the when the death angel came through, he would look at One thing to see whether or not he would ravage the house. What was it? The blood on the doorpost of the house, which was the seal of God. Have you been sealed today in the blood of the Lamb? Are you numbered among God's people? Have you found your place in the census of the kingdom of God? If the answer to that is no, and you desire in your heart to know Him today, all who will can come and know that it was always meant to be that way. And that is never going to leave. That is never going to leave. As the lights come down and as the music plays, I want to invite you this morning. I want to invite you to become part of the family. I want to invite you to come back to the Father. I want to invite you to repent. I want to invite you to just cry. Maybe you've been running for a long time, you know. Maybe it's just been hard and you've been doing it all on your own. Well, listen. You know, you know how I feel about the sinner's prayer, but here's where I stand today. If you called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ at some point in your life and you've walked away, He didn't. He didn't. I don't know where you are with God, but if you called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ at some point in your life and you just don't know how to get back, you just don't know what to do, God says, draw. James says, draw near to God and God will draw near to you. Just take a step, friend. Whether it's redemption, restoration, repentance, salvation, transformation, I don't care. Let's do business with God. Man, you need Him. I need Him. And He has promised that He knew every hair on the top of your head before the day you was born, that you have been numbered amongst God's children. If you hear Him calling today, do not harden your hearts as they did in the wilderness, but come, come and be cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Come, now, come.